Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, it's Father's Day weekend. Happy Father's Day to you. Happy Father's Day to you as well, Jimmy. You know, well, we had such a great example all these years, and that's why we continue on this program, because our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and this is our first one without him. I know lots of people have similar moments in time where they uh, experience the death of a parent, and this is one for us, but we feel like we're honoring our father by continuing this program, and that's one of the things that we continue to do, Rick. It's just uh, continuing on a message and a thought process of educating the body of Christ. That's correct, Jimmy. And of course, we do miss our Father, but we know now that He is with His Heavenly Father. Well, we know on Father's Day, a godly father knows God. A godly father loves and honors his wife. A godly father accepts responsibility for his children's spiritual training. And a godly father is continually aware of his influence. And as we are helping and educate the body of Christ, it's one of the things that we do. Well, Rick, we've got a very important program ahead of us today. So let's get started with geopolitical events that are happening with our broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. And this week, as he did last week, he joins us from the countryside in the south of France. Thank you for joining us, Ken. Uh, Rick, it's always my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll start off right now, and we're going to look at the Russia-Ukraine crisis from a slightly different perspective than we've looked at it in the past. One of the maybe unintended consequences is that Putin's Black Sea blockade is bringing the prospect of a famine uh, into play. Uh, it is, and it's something that some people who are looking at this have been warning about for several months. You have uh, David Beasley, who's the director of the World Food Organization, who really has been sounding the alarm about this for about the past two to three months. Um, David's a former South Carolina governor. I happened to actually make one of my first trips to northern Iraq to visit persecuted Christians with David. He's a committed Christian as well. And um, after many years working with uh, the persecuted church, he took on this job with the World Food Organization. And he's somebody who has a heart for the underprivileged, the heart for the small people who always get hurt when bad things happen around the world. And since pretty much since March, uh, David has been warning that the cutting off of Odessa and Mariupol and those other Black Sea ports by the Russians. They have blockaded them. They've mined the ports. Uh, they have not allowed civilian shipping to go in and out. First of all, it has crippled the Ukrainian economy. 90% of Ukraine's very, very extensive grain imports have been blockaded, have not been able to reach world markets. And this has had the consequences, that unintended consequence of potentially causing and, and pretty quickly causing really the next two or three months, a famine in places like Somalia, Chad, Uganda, you know, much of Africa is really at risk because they import so much of their grain and much of it, who knew, came from the Ukraine. So now under discussion are ways of setting up a humanitarian corridor where the Russians would allow shipping to go through. Uh, I can't see why the Russians would really go along with this because the reason they're blockading the port is to cripple the Ukraine's economy. The reason they want to cripple Ukraine's economy, so Zelensky will give up. <laughs> so this is a strategic war aim for the Russians, and I just don't see them giving up on it very easily. There's going to need to be an awful lot of international pressure on Russia 
for them to agree to set up these uh, uh, humanitarian corridors to allow the Ukrainians to export their grain. Well, we see it here, the consequences of this war and global famine is a very serious consequence. And there's a lot of countries like you mentioned, Somalia and several of the African countries where they're essentially on the borderline anyways of being able to get enough nutrition. Uh, Something like this could really do a lot of damage to a lot of people. Oh, it would be absolutely horrible. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people dying from hunger in just Somalia alone. And who knows how many more in other African countries. Uh, this, is, this is a very, very serious thing. Coupled to that is the fact that in Somalia and the Western African countries, they've had a pretty much four years of drought. They've, they have not, they've had only one relatively good crop in the last four years. Uh, otherwise, the crops have shriveled up. They've died. Uh, three and a half million people have fled their homes in Somalia in search of food because of crop failure over the past uh, three years. I mean, that's it's phenomenal. So if you add to that the drying up of, of wheat from Ukraine, you really had an enormous humanitarian disaster on your hands. Well, we're talking about Russia and Ukraine right now, but one of the other things that we talk about on this program is China. And China, potentially, they've uh, sent signals out, um, and we talk about it often, that they have designs on Taiwan. And that could be another conflict. That may be just as bad with uh, the global disruption it could cause. Well, I think the disruption caused by Chinese attack on Taiwan would make Ukraine uh, look like a garden party on an early summer afternoon. Frankly, the, the Taiwanese, Taiwan is a very highly developed economy. They make something like 80% of the computer chips uh, that are used in every product that you buy, from your iPhone to your automobile uh, to what your television, whatever. And if China were to attack Taiwan, which they have said they're going to do, by the way, this is not, we're not speculating that it might happen. This is something the Chinese themselves have said they're going to do. They're going to reintegrate Taiwan into communist China, and they will do it by force if they need to. They have extensive military plans. Some of those plans, by the way, appear to have leaked purposefully last week or were leaked by the regime uh, to terrify the Taiwanese, because the plans show that they would use wave after wave after wave of drones and uninhabited um, defense vehicles, not just missiles, but, uh, you know, drones and perhaps even uh, uh, watercraft to um, uh, attack Taiwan. Not in other words, not putting their their people on the front lines, but putting equipment on the front lines. So the Taiwanese are telling anybody who will listen, watch out for this. Make sure you keep the um, uh, the straps on the wrists of the Chinese. Don't let them loose to come after us because the disruption to the world economy will be catastrophic, catastrophic should China attack Taiwan. Well, looking at some of those repercussions that we're facing right now is is $5 per gallon gasoline prices here in the States, which is way out of line with what we're used to paying here. Maybe maybe it's more consistent with what they pay in France, but certainly is a drag on our economy. And because of that, it looks like uh, President Biden has done an about face. Well, the $5 gas prices were entirely self-inflicted by the Biden administration. We've talked about this uh, several times on the show at the, in the first days of the administration. Um, Biden um, uh, shut down 
oil and new oil and gas leases on federal land. He shut down drilling in Alaska. Uh, he shut down the key, Keystone XL pipeline and on and on and on. He took a number of steps that had the impact of doubling the price of oil and doubling the price of gasoline. Then the Ukraine war came along and it further exacerbated that. Now, the about face you mentioned is Biden in Saudi Arabia. He's now planning to go to Saudi Arabia in July to plead with him, to beg with him to do something to help lower the price of oil. This is a pathetic move by a president who has had nothing good to say about Saudi Arabia and who has taken active steps to undermine the government of Saudi Arabia, uh, particularly the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. So for Biden to go there on his hands and knees, begging for the Saudis to do something will be uh, quite a spectacle to watch. Again, I can't tell you how the Saudis are going to respond, but if I were the crown prince, I would be asking for some real serious guarantees from the United States uh, that the U.S. will start to cooperate with the Saudis instead of treating Saudi Arabia like a pariah state, which is what Biden has been doing until now. They are going to, the Saudis are going to want U.S. action on Iran. They're going to want to see us uh, uh, make sure that the Iranians do not get nuclear weapons. They are now very, very close to that. They're going to want to make sure that um, they get Patriot missile batteries. We took them away in April of 2021. Biden says he's going to go there to negotiate a truce in Yemen. Well, good luck on that. There's a war that's been going on for a number of years. And and uh, uh, President Biden can say all they want about how senseless that war is. It is a vital national security issue for the Saudis. And if Biden doesn't understand that, he's going to be wasting his time in Riyadh. Well, Ken, we have hot spots all around the world, and we've touched on a few of them just now. But I do not want to let this interview go by without touching on Iran. And I know that we talk about them most every week, but it is very concerning what is taking place there as they get closer and closer to developing an actionable nuclear weapon. And measured in doomsday clock terms, they're five minutes to midnight. Right. So the, 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 the time is running out for a peaceful solution, a negotiated solution to the Iranian nuclear weapons program. The Iranians have violated every uh, guideline set down by the International Atomic Energy Agency. They are now enriching up to 60 percent. Uh, even the former head of the United States Central Command, General McKenzie, said uh, recently that you can measure the time Iran needs to build a nuclear weapon. In other words, it's breakout time, not in months any longer, but in weeks. So they are very, very close to nuclear weapons capability, and there's nothing stopping them. There's nothing stopping them. Um, last week, the IAEA held the Iranians in contempt. They passed a measure against them. And I uh, think that this is going to go back to the United Nations Security Council, just as it did in 2005, 2006 under President George W. Bush, who, by the way, he was called uh, a unilateral president. Well, he uh, got together a posse of countries around the world to Im impose multilateral sanctions against Iran. And I, I suspect that that's where we're headed once again. Well, Ken, we will continue to monitor these very significant world events and their importance to us. We appreciate your role in informing our listeners and keeping us apprised of what's going on. Uh, it's always my pleasure to be with you, Rick. God bless. Rick, we're going to continue that theme of the famine that we talked about because I think that is so very important as we're watching the events in the world. And we'll pick that up in our next segment. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Rights group Amnesty International says a military of Myanmar has likely committed war crimes against civilians. The junta seized power from the elected government in a February 2021 coup and has forcibly displaced more than 150,000 people. Brian Dennett with AMG International says airstrikes over the last few weeks have destroyed homes, medical facilities, and churches. Please pray the AMG team will have the resources to help more people, in Jesus' name. And a father in India went from an alcoholic who shamed his family to a spiritual leader, pointing his family to God. Eric with Mission India says one of their church planters shared the gospel with Dinesh. He began a relationship with Jesus, gave up alcohol, and today Dinesh is influencing his family for Christ. Give to Mission India and find your place in the story at missionnews.org, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Dodd Morris. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio. Uh, This is the portion of our program that we'd like to call the Middle East News Update. And joining us today, as he usually does, is Dave Dolan. He's an author and a journalist and an expert on all things in the Middle East. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dave. You're welcome, as always, Rick. Well, we tend to focus on Israel when we're talking to you, Dave, and there's a lot to talk about when it comes to Israel this week. Essentially, the government is in crisis, isn't it? The government is finished for all intents and purposes. It's, uh, you know, it's just going to take one more nail in the coffin and it'll be buried. They've lost four members now of the coalition, uh, two members of the prime minister's own Yamina party. Uh, We had the first one a few weeks ago, as you'll recall, say she was no longer going to vote with the government. Now, another one has come out and he wants uh, more aid given to the settlements. And he also wants Israeli law to continue to be extended to the settlements. And uh, the left wing parties in the government don't want that. So there's that. And then a member of the left wing merits party left for her reasons. I won't go into all of that. And then one of the Arab members of the Ra'am party also said he would no longer vote with the government, but wouldn't vote to bring it down. So essentially, they've lost their majority considerably now by four seats, and uh, any serious issue, it'll fall apart over that. The expectation is that elections are coming. Uh, A poll was taken on Monday by Channel 12 in Israel, Rick, and it showed 56% of Israelis don't want the Bennett government to continue. 
They realize it's too broad, it's too weak. Um, 63% said of those who voted for the parties in the government said they still support the government, but even a good portion of them don't. So it looks like new elections and other polls, uh, again, showing that uh, Bibi Netanyahu's Likud party will pick up quite a few seats and that it will uh, be able to form a new right-wing uh, government after the elections, which uh, they've already put forth a bill, Rick, to hold them in October. There has to be a three-month period between a collapse of a, go- of a government and the holding of elections according to Israeli law. And three months exactly would bring it right into the Jewish holidays. So they would do it after uh, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, in the fall. So that's the situation. And uh, it makes it very, very uh, odd to to watch the government be so weak, and especially with the problems all around and the situation with the run. It's a dangerous situation, but it was always an illusion that these eight parties from left to right would all sit together and be able to agree on things. It just hasn't happened, and it looks like BB's back. Well, certainly a situation to keep an eye on. Uh, Amidst this turmoil in the government, it looks like President Biden is making a visit to the Middle East, but unlike previous years, his main focus is not going to be Israel or the Palestinian situation, is it? No, it's pretty much agreed that he would not be coming if it weren't for the other destination, Saudi Arabia. That's his true target, all the pundits are saying. And of course, it's uh, as one wrote, he has a gas canister in his hand as he goes there. He obviously needs to get uh, more fuel supplies up and is unwilling to appropriate that from American stockpiles, uh, frankly. Uh, but he wants to get the Saudis to up their game. And so even though he's called the murder of Khashoggi, the uh, Saudi journalist, a a massive crime, and that the current leader of Saudi Arabia, the effective leader, um, the crown prince, is behind the murder, he still is going there. And he's also having a summit in Najeda with nine other regional uh, Arab leaders from Egypt, from Qatar, Kuwait, other countries there. And they'll be discussing the war in Yemen and other issues besides oil. But that is his real aim and the real reason he's going. And the pundits are saying he's just kind of covering that, trying to a little bit, because, of course, he's getting a lot of opposition in the left wing of the Democratic Party for going to Saudi Arabia. So he's saying, well, I'm also going to Israel. And, you know, and they're having he's having a teleconference while he's with Bennett with the uh, leader of India and Egypt. So uh, he has another thing going on there. He's also going to meet with the uh, Palestinian Authority leader, Abbas, probably in Ramallah, and uh, just a 40-hour visit, and again, then jet straight to uh, Jeddah and have the main event there. Well, we look ahead to President Biden's visit, but this past week there was uh, some high-ranking members of the European Union visiting Israel. There were, and uh, one of them, the head of the European Commission, she said that, uh, speaking of energy, she said that the answer to the cutoff of Russian oil to um, several European countries, Russia cut it off, to Poland and Sweden and a few others, that the answer might be Israel. And the pipeline that's been proposed to go under the Mediterranean Sea to first Cyprus and then on to Greece, and then the European Union could get Uh, gas, natural gas and oil, but mostly it would be natural gas from Israel. Of course, for Israel, Rick, it would be a great blessing to be able to sell 
natural gas and oil to Europe. And uh, they're certainly hoping that they'll be able to do that. The European Union is a source of uh, a lot of aid to Israel, also the Palestinians, but certainly they want to keep relations up with them. They don't want to offend Russia any more than they have. And by the way, we had the Russian deputy foreign minister condemning Israel for bombing Damascus airport last weekend, uh, Rick, last Friday, a week ago. Uh, they hit both runways. There's a military runway and a civilian one. They potmarked both of them about four or five times, and they had to shut the airport down for several days to do repairs. And the Russian deputy foreign minister, you know, condemned Israel, but the spokeswoman for the foreign ministry made a ridiculous statement. She said, how can you violate a neighbor's sovereignty in that way? That's a terrible thing to do, Israel. Well, what exactly is Russia doing in Ukraine? They're doing far more than just bombing a few runways. So it shows the hypocrisy of of the world. But Israel continues that shadow war against Iran in Syria. The Syrian regime doesn't like it. And we had a news report that Israel's warned that the Syrian president's own homes, his palaces, would be bombed if Iran is allowed to continue Uh, It's nefarious activity just to the north of Israel. And again, the only reason Iran is there, they've said it, is to go after Israel, support Hezbollah and Lebanon, and get ready for a big war of annihilation against Israel. So they certainly will continue to strike as they can uh, at Iranian targets in Syria. Well, David, another Iranian proxy is Hamas, and uh, they're in Gaza, and there has been, as we know in the past, several wars that have flared up between Israel and Gaza, and they now say they are preparing, and they will even be more prepared for this next war. Yes, that was uh, Mustafa Sawaf. He's uh, one of the best-known journalists in uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, very well-respected, and he writes for the official Hamas newspaper, so he's very much a Hamas member himself. He said it will be a difficult war, but that it is coming. It'll be a major war. He didn't mention that Iran itself would probably be involved in it. He talked about other Arab powers supporting it, that it would be the biggest war they've had and this sort of thing. But again, Rick, this isn't really news. Hamas has declared its uh, decision to help destroy Israel many, many years ago. Uh, Iran uh, backs them. So, uh, you know, we're moving in that direction at some point. It's just a question of when. It's all in the hands of God. And meanwhile, they're worried in Gaza and in Egypt and other places about uh, grain supplies because they get 60, 70 percent of their grain from Ukraine normally. So does a lot of the Arab world and a lot of Africa and even India. And uh, they're very worried about uh, the war and the cut off of that grain. And there are reports that Russia is secretly shipping some of that grain to Syria, uh, but it's Ukrainian grain. They're getting no money for it. They're stealing it and shipping it down through the Black Sea. So difficult situation in the whole region. But again, as we always say, God's on the throne and it's in his hands. Well, it certainly is in his hands. And as you look at all these stories, they kind of where one stops, the next one begins. They're all interconnected, almost like a series of dominoes. And and when that first domino goes, uh, all the others are going to be interrelated. Of course, as uh, we talk about on this program all the time, God does have uh, a plan, an end time scenario events that are going to take place. And they're just all lining up uh, perfectly for that plan to begin, aren't they? They are, and uh, it's, you know, sad to see people suffer and 
starve and be bombed and all the things that are going on. But again, Yeshua, Jesus told us it would be like this until the end. And in fact, in the very end period, as most of your listeners will know, it will only increase and get worse. Uh, But of course, it ends with a great dawn with the Lord returning and with uh, the restoration of the Garden of Eden to earth, basically, is what is promised, and eventually the New Jerusalem. So we got to keep our eyes on that as well as looking at what's going on below. But as you always say, it's important to follow these events because they are setting that stage for biblical prophecy to be fulfilled, as your late father said, pretty much every week. Well, David, we thank you for helping us follow these events, and we thank you for your expertise in this area. We look forward to talking to you next week as we continue to watch and wait. Well, thank you, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but when we return, we will have more as we look at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, uh, in our first uh, segment today with Ken Timmerman, we talked about the issue of famine and what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, the situation with the blocked seaports and all that's taking place. But I wanted to examine this even further. And the reason why is because in the future, as you look at Bible prophecy and how the events uh, will come about in the tribulation period, in that seven-year period of time, we do see one of those horses that are uh, the seven seals that begin in Revelation chapter 6. We do see famine as one of the, I guess you would call the judgments that will be brought upon the earth as it's uh, uh, revealed and unveiled in the tribulation period. So I wanted to go to a a new uh, broadcast partner of ours, a friend of Professor Tom Meyer, who will be on the program later, and we'll talk to him about his new role in, in Bible memorization and what he's doing at the Creation Research Center in uh, the Ark in Kentucky. But uh, he suggested I talk to Dr. George Gunn. Dr. Gunn is a professor at Shasta Bible College. He is also a professor of Bible theology and biblical languages. He's very knowledgeable, and uh, welcome to the program today, Dr. Gunn. 
Hi, Jimmy. Thanks for welcoming me to your program. I look forward to this very much. We have been together in the past. Uh, I know that Shasta Bible College has a great conference. I've spoken there. My father spoke there, the Alpha and Omega Conference, the beginning uh, and the end. And that's a great program that you've been doing over all these years. And I'm so thankful that you're on the program with us today. Well, first of all, I was looking and I see that you're involved in a mission in Nepal. Could you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about your background? Sure, I'd be glad to do that. You know, um, I used to be deeply involved in mountaineering when I was a lot younger. I don't do anything (laughs) like that nowadays. But I got called one day here at at my office in Shasta Bible College from a man from Nepal. And that immediately caught my attention because, of course, you know, the world's tallest mountain uh, in the Mm -hmm. Himalayas is Mm -hmm. there in Nepal. But he was he is president of a mission organization called Children Rescue Mission that's involved in rescuing Nepalese children from child trafficking, which is a huge, huge problem in mm. Nepal. And uh, and just you know, and a great evangelical Christian uh, organization. And uh, so we established a friendship, and over the years I've become more involved. I'm on the board now of that. Uh, uh, mission organization, and we are we are involved in uh, planting churches, preaching the gospel, and rescuing children from uh, from child trafficking in Nepal. And it's a, it's an exciting work. It's great to see the way God is working. Um, hundreds and hundreds of people are getting saved. We have an annual pastors conference that draws hundreds of pastors. Um, and it's just, it's an exciting work. It's, it's, it's wonderful uh, living here in the United States where you see so much apostasy and, and troubles to see a field in the world where so much is happening for the gospel. Mm. If people and wanted to help, how could they help? Yeah, well, childrenrescuemission.org is the website, and there's always need for help. There's need for, of course, financial support. We support children, we support pastors, we support widows, and we keep our overhead at a bare minimum here in the United States. And so uh, there's the need for financial help, of course. And then, of course, we we take uh, mission trips uh, to Nepal also, and people can travel with us to Nepal and get involved in the work there. So, again, it's children, without an S on the end of it, childrenrescuemission.org. Mm-hmm. Well, then, I, I know that you are very well uh, versed in this world famine that we're coming up on in the latest reports mm-hmm. with what's happening in the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Uh, 49 million people face famine as the Ukraine war and climate disasters intensify. Now, we've we've talked with Dr. Don DeYoung and climate, and we, we do know that things are, are becoming a little bit harder to find food sources for people. How bad is it really, would you say? Oh, it, it, in certain parts of the world, it is just incredibly bad. Um, Ukraine is really the breadbasket of that part of the world. And uh, uh, I was not aware of this until this present conflict, but uh, having looked into it, uh, seeing how much um, wheat, especially, is exported from Ukraine all across that part of the world is just amazing. And for those ports to be closed is causing problems not just for the people of Ukraine. Of course, they're suffering horribly just because of the war and, uh, and localized problems, but um, almost globally, 
you could say. And, you know, one of the things, Jimmy, that impresses me about this is that, and we can talk more about this uh, in a few moments, but uh, what we're seeing today is not, of course, the tribulation period. Right. Uh, the church will be raptured before the tribulation. But what we are seeing is another step in the globalization of the world. And the whole world will be completely globalized under the Antichrist. We're marching steadily towards that. But, you know, in ancient times, a, a nation or a region of a nation might have suffered famine. But today, when a place like Ukraine suffers warfare, it's famine in many nations. And, and I think this is just another part of the world marching toward the situation that, we're, that it's going to face in the tribulation period. We won't see the ultimate outcome of that because, thank God, uh, Christ will come and, and call his bride, the church, out of the world before the tribulation period begins. So thinking about this globalization, we know that in the, in the um, tribulation period itself, at the midpoint, three and a half years into the tribulation period, the Antichrist will establish a, an entire one-world global system of government and worship. In the three, first three and a half years, he will be increasing in power. The Bible, you know, the Bible tells us that he will be a ruler over a ten-nation confederacy. And so um, when we see world situations today leading to greater, a greater sense of globalization, uh, this is stage setting that will allow the Antichrist to do that in the last days. Um, I just heard uh, yesterday that um, the uh, uh, European Union has given um, Ukraine permission to become a member. Now, it won't become a member overnight, but they've approved its application. And the head of the European Union is talking about how, how they admire Ukraine for the stand that they've, they're taking, how much more European they have become. So these, again, are steps toward globalization, and all these things are leading to this final form that will come to culmination in the tribulation period. We won't see that final form formulation uh, before the rapture, but we are definitely seeing the world taking clear steps in that direction. So right. getting back a little bit to famine, uh, I think it's yeah. the World Health Organization has said one in three people tonight will go to bed hungry uh, or mm -hmm. with famine and famine situations. How much worse could it get? Well, of course, it's going to get much worse in the tribulation period. Um, you know, famine is one of the four judgments identified in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel Chapter 14, verse 21 says, Thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. So these four judgments coming from God, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, will come to a, an acme in the tribulation period. Uh, Jesus himself described the tribulation period in the Olivet Discourse as a time of trouble that, like the world has never seen to this time, nor will it ever see. Uh, we can think of great famines in the history of the world, and some have wiped out millions of people. 
but the famine in the tribulation period will be worse than any of them, according to the words of the Lord Jesus. So we're seeing horrifying famine today, but you and I can be thankful that we're not facing the famine that will come in the tribulation period. And if anything, this ought to motivate us Mm -hmm. to reach out with greater fervor than ever to preach the gospel so that folks might come to know the Lord before the rapture occurs. Those that are left behind are going to be facing just a, just a, an unbelievably, an indescribable uh, a problem in the world. I like that, the fact that you brought that up because so many times I see people get focused on Bible prophecy. And, and this is something that we try to help people to understand. Don't get so focused on it that you don't, Bible prophecy is there to motivate us, to understand the times in which we're living, to, be, uh, to understand the urgency of the hour. Uh, although Peter and Paul first, uh, first spoke about it uh, to the early church uh, in the first century, today we're still waiting for that event of the rapture to take place. And it is imminent. But seeing these things and how much worse it could be, uh, if it's worse now and we're living through this and it's going to get worse in the future, that should motivate us, Dr. Gunn. I appreciate that 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 thought process. Quickly, as you look at Bible prophecy, how do you study Bible prophecy as it unfolds? And I know that this is a seminary class level, uh, but in, in an elevator speech, as we like to say, you know, you have 30 seconds really to share with someone. How would you encourage them to study Bible prophecy? Well, I mean, the best thing to do is just to read the Bible. That, that's always been uh, my focus. When I came to know the Lord, as um, I, I was an unbeliever until I was 19 years of age, uh, when I first came to know the Lord, the Bible so captivated my mind. Um, and very early in my, my pattern of reading the Bible, I, I became aware of Bible prophecy. It's always been a, a thrill to me to, to know that God who is standing outside of time, has privileged us with information about the future. Mm. And, uh, uh, and prophecy is not just the study of the book of Revelation. Uh, I, I teach a class on the end times, and when I talk about that, oftentimes people say, oh, that, is that study in the book of Revelation? I said, well, it involves the book of Revelation, but it's so much more than that. Uh, prophecy uh, begins as early as the book of Genesis Mm -hmm. and runs through almost every book of the Bible. And so the best way to study prophecy is to keep your eyes open to what's going on around you, but also keep your eyes focused on the Bible, the Word of God. God, who stands outside of time, has privileged us tremendously by letting us know what the future has in store. And as we said earlier, that's a motivation to us, a motivation to preach the gospel. And as it says in 1 John chapter 3, it's a motivation to live a godly and holy life. Because one day, one day soon, maybe today, we will be standing before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, giving an account of how we've lived for him in this world. Wow. Dr. Gunn, I would almost say that you've been listening to our program for a lot of years because we are on the same page. I appreciate that so much. And I loved how you went to Ezekiel. You know, a lot of people go to those seven sealed judgments and the sealed judgments, but you went to Ezekiel and you, Ezekiel chapter 14, and you brought it yeah. out about this famine and what's going to take place and the judgment on Jerusalem and the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, that's what the tribulation period is for, is to get the Jewish people to understand that Jesus Christ is 
is the Messiah and that God is their God. I appreciate that so much. And uh, thank you so much for joining with us today. I look forward to coming back. And uh, if you allow us to really to pick your brain about prophetic events in the future and how events today are setting up for those uh, future prophecies to be fulfilled. Hey, man, I look forward to it, Jimmy. Thanks so much for having me on your program today. Well, excellent interview, Jimmy, and it does emphasize the importance of studying Bible prophecy. Well, I'm glad we have this chance to take a short break and talk about a few things that we've just recently put up on our bookstore, Jimmy, and and I want to get your thoughts on these things. We have put up PDFs. Uh, I know um, you and I are kind of old school. We like the books in our hands, but a lot of people like PDFs because you could download them digitally to your phone, to your laptop, uh, to your tablet. But what we have put on these PDFs are three books. Now, these three books, Daniel, Prophet to the Gentiles, Ezekiel, the Man and the Message, and Revelation, a Chronology. These books are form the basis of what we call our trio of triplets. Jimmy, and could you go ahead and tell our listeners why, what this trio of triplets is and why it's so important? Well, we used a hermeneutical approach when we were studying Bible prophecy. Really, and it's a trio of triplets, as you said, uh, these trio of triplets beginning with the three strands of the human family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, we're given the three strands of the human family. Now, hermeneutics is that, and I use that word, that's that big $5 seminary word, and it really talks about who was the author writing to at the time that the author was writing. Who was he speaking to? That's how you interpret who these promises, who those covenants were made for and to. And that's who they go to. Well, when we look at that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, it talks about the three strands, as I said, of the human family, Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. And when you look at this, this helps us to divide up through history, his story from Genesis to Revelation, the three strands of the human family for the first 2,000 years of human history from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 12, we had Gentiles on the earth. Matter of fact, the first time the word Gentile is used in the scriptures is Genesis chapter 10. If you've been listening to our legacy series, you know that dad has been teaching on this all these past few months that we have been using him in our legacy series. He has taught the three strands of the human family. From Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 12, the first 2,000 years of human history, we only had Gentiles on the earth. From Genesis chapter 13 to Acts chapter 1, we had the second strand of the human family, Jews. The Jewish people were on the earth. Abram, by faith, came from the Ur of Chaldees into the land of promise. And because he did that, because he obeyed God and followed him at his word, he was promised that his descendants would be as the stars in the heavens. This was the beginning of the Jewish people. The promises to the Jews, the covenants with the Jewish people. And from the, for the next 2,000 years, we had Jewish people and Gentiles on the earth. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 2 was the beginning of the church. And we talked about that day of Pentecost, the Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. Just uh, We just celebrated that. Well, on the day of Pentecost, the church began. And the Christians will be on the earth until the rapture of the church. So that's the first of the three strands of the human family. Uh, Gentiles, first 2,000 years. For the second 2,000 years, Jews and Gentiles. And then for the third 2,000 years until today, 
And the rapture hasn't happened yet until today. We have Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. Of course, when we look at the three main prophetic books of the Bible, the second of our trio of triplets, it's divided up. The book of Daniel, the times of the Gentiles, the definition for the times of the Gentiles, anytime that the Gentile world is in control of the Jewish people or the city of Jerusalem. And that's where we begin in the book of Daniel, when Daniel and his three friends were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. Of course, Ezekiel gives us, and it's the book for the Jewish people. Daniel lays out that timeline, and that's why Daniel is so very important. And unless you understand the book of Daniel, you really won't be able to understand Bible prophecy. Daniel is that skeleton. All the prophecies hang on the book of Daniel and the timeline that's given there. Ezekiel gives us the restoration. Well, it gives us the judgment of the Jewish people, the first 32 chapters from Ezekiel chapter one to Ezekiel chapter 32. But from Ezekiel chapter 33 to the end of the book, verse uh, chapter 48, we see the restoration of the Jewish people. So Ezekiel is a book that's given to the Jews. Uh, how they come back into uh, being resurrected, that valley of dry bones, and how they're resurrected and brought back, and they will be brought back into the land, and God will regather his people. Ezekiel 34, 35, 36, 37. Of course, we always talk about Ezekiel 38, an alignment of nations. And then when you look at the last six chapters of Ezekiel, it talks about the building of that temple, that temple that Jesus Christ will build. Then when we get to the book of Revelation, that is the book that's laid out for Christians. So those are the three main prophetic books. They're not the only three. There's Zechariah. And then there are 17 minor prophets that are, uh, were written by 16 different authors. But when we look at the prophetic aspect of the Bible, we get all of our prophetic information from those main um, minor and major prophetic books. And then, of course, when we look at the end, the last of the trio of triplets would be the timeline, beginning with the rapture of the church, as Dr. George Gunn talked about. He talked about the rapture, that's that next event to take place. We've always talked about it when we are teaching and talking about and taking a look at the book at the end of the program. The rapture is the next thing to happen. The second main event would be the return of Jesus Christ. That's when he actually comes back to the earth. That's talked about in Zechariah chapter 14. It's talked about in Revelation chapter 19. Matthew chapter 24 gives the events leading up to his second coming. And then when we look at the third main event of our trio of triplets, the last event, which would be the great white throne judgment. Really the whole motivating factor for all of us studying Bible prophecy because that is the most solemn event in all of history. So our trio of triplets, the three strands of the human family, who the author was writing to when he wrote those books to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and to the Christians, the timelines. And then when you look at the three main prophetic books, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, and then of course the timeline, the rapture, the second coming of Christ, and the great white throne judgment. So, Rick, that's the trio of triplets, and these books lay it all out uh, perfectly, and uh, they're available on our website now. 
Jimmy, I'd like to call that Bible Prophecy 101. You can get a handle on the trio of triplets. You'll understand what you're talking about there. It provides a framework for you to study prophecy in the rest of the Bible, correct? That's exactly right. Rick, thanks for bringing that up, and I encourage everybody, go to our website, prophecytoday.com. Take a look at those PDFs. They're near and dear to our heart, but really they're very simple and an explanation to help you to further your study in Bible prophecy. But we're going to go to our next guest, Rick, and we're catching up with our friend Tom Meyer as he made his way across the country, and he's in Kentucky at the Creation Research Museum. Tom, I'm glad you made it, brother. Hey, greetings. We are live from the Creation Museum today. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. Um, you know, I've, I have been, my brother uh, Rick and I have been there. We went to the Ark, but tell us what it's about, and uh, the Creation Museum and the Ark and that whole location there. Tell us uh, what they're doing, some of the things they're doing for this summer. Sure. Well, I'm a volunteer here at the Creation Museum. We've been uh, volunteering a little bit every summer the last 10 years, but we've moved here permanently to do that. And one of the reasons why is because, Jimmy, as you know, this is where the action's at. It seems like God's really, really blessing the work of the hands here. Yes. You've got you got people coming here just in the parking lot I saw it today from all over the Continental 48, even all over the world. Wow. And when the guests, yeah, it's amazing when the guests come here. Of course, like the bread and butter of the Creation Museum, where I spend most of my time, is the, the main exhibit that walks you through Genesis 1-1 all the way through chapter 11, verse number 9 with the Tower <laughs> of Babel. Yeah. Showing through these amazing state-of-the-art exhibits that God really did create the world in six literal days mm. and demonstrating the truth of that through all different kinds of multimedia and et cetera. And there's amazing exhibits besides the main one that demonstrate uh, the preciousness of life, uh, how we are really fearfully and wonderfully made. We didn't go from ooze to the zoo to you by a series of time and chance and over billions of years. Yeah. Really God's children. There's things for kids to do, as you know, there's amazing zip lines and playgrounds and, just so much family fun. This is the, you know, the greatest Christ-centered attraction in the world. And here, among the other things that guests can do is they can come to some of the workshops called discovery programs. And in one of those, I teach the believers here from all over the world, Jimmy, how to memorize scripture, how I learned to memorize in Jerusalem, and hopefully inspire these people, and that they can go back to their homes all over the map. And kind of do the same thing, right? To hide God's word in their hearts so they don't sin against it. Amen. Well, tell us, Tom. I mean, like in this process, so I know that you have memorized the book of Revelation. Is it the whole book of Genesis or a large portion of Genesis? <laughs> um, chapters 1 through 11. Well, that's <laughs> that's more, that's pretty good. Tell us, uh, first of all, how do we do this? How, if I wanted to really get into memorizing Scripture, what's the best way to do it? Well, number one is you need to ask the good Lord for help, don't you? Because we know that we need help because it's hard to memorize. Mm. Even for me, it is, Jimmy. I mean, I do have a life, but, you know, I spend an hour a day every day for a month maybe to memorize one chapter. Wow. But what, what I teach the guests here in these, these programs is basically it's three different ways. And this is just the the... the the synopsis of it, the nutshell of it, is number one, memorize by reading aloud, and that's the key. You have to read it aloud. Not only reading it aloud, but staring at the page, the the power of format. You know in your old Bible where Genesis 1-1 is on the page, right? Right. Or where Revelation starts on the page, that's a huge help. 
I learned that helped. That format helped when I was in Israel. I would go to the yeshivas <laughs> and ask too many questions, and they would uh, show me how the Talmud. If you go from here to the end of the earth, every Talmud is exactly the same. Every page is exactly the same, no matter where you buy no, it. I'm kidding, Cause right? under- yeah, because they understand the power of format. So that's mm. number one: read it aloud and look at the text. Number two is to hear it when we're in the car or we're doing errands or things like that, you know, just put on the book of James or Titus or Jonah over and over and over again while you're driving around, and you'll be able to memorize it. I'm telling you, if you just did one verse a week, you could have the whole book of Jonah memorized in less than a year. And remember, that's the only sign that was given unto the Jewish people, right, was the sign of Jonah. And especially if you have little kids, when they go to bed at nighttime, put the scriptures on, let that wash over their little hearts and minds, and, and let them fall asleep to that. And if you want them to fall asleep fast, just put on First Chronicles. <laughs> and then third and finally, as I memorized by writing it out, just good old-fashioned pen and paper over and over and over and over again. So that's basically, in a nutshell, hearing it, reading it, and writing it. Wow. And the, and the Word of God, it's powerful. Correct. I mean, it is so powerful that just doing that, and sometimes today we don't even take the time barely to read one little portion of a scripture a day, but really reading the Word of God can transform our lives, correct? It's so true, Jimmy. You know, if it's in our heads, we might forget it, and if it's in our hands, someone might steal it. But as Matthew Henry once said, if it's in your heart, locked away, deep down in there, Mm. no one can take it from you. You own it. You know, and the, and the way that our world is going, Tom, there might be a day and, and the world is turning against God where we don't have the written word of God in front of us. So the more that we can teach our our, our children, uh, those around us, the young people in our churches today to memorize, that's the one thing that the world cannot take away from us is what's hidden in our heart. Tom, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And hopefully I'm, I'm encouraging people to go to the Ark, to the Creation Museum, and to look you up on the day that you're going to be there. Thanks, Tom, so much. Thank you. Well, I think that was a great half hour of teaching. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father, on this Father's Day weekend, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. It's great to be here on Father's Day, Rick. I know you're celebrating uh, Cal's birthday. Well, <laughs> tell us about your story, Rick. I mean, you waited until you were in your 50s, was it, to have children? <laughs> not, not quite my 50s. I, uh, I was honored or I was blessed to have children a little bit later in uh, life. I, my first child was when I was 45, <laughs> and uh, I'm not quite 50 yet, and we've managed to have three kids in that time span, and uh, my middle child, Cal, only the only boy, he just turned three, so uh, we just celebrating his birthday, uh, and uh, of course, uh, Father's Day has a whole new meeting. Uh, when you do become a father, I'm, I'm blessed to have become a father. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, you and I both traveled a lot. We did a lot overseas and worked in Israel for so many years. And we both had children late in life. Uh, you just have, Yours are a little bit younger, and I do wish you a happy Father's Day. And the children are a blessing. And there's a cer- there's a, certainly a responsibility that goes along with it, training them up in the way that they should go, teaching them the instructions. Well, Rick, uh, speaking of that, this week, 
Uh, we're going to our Legacy Series, and in the Legacy Series this week, we're going to continue our study on the false church established at Babel, or some of you might know it better as Babylon, some 4,500 years ago. Nimrod had a wife named Semiramis. You remember Nimrod was the king. His wife was Semiramis. They had a son, Tammuz. The mother and son became the co-equal recipients of worship. This information is from extra biblical resources. But if you take your Bibles and go to the book of Jeremiah chapter 7, we'll begin our legacy series this week with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Alpha and Omega. My source is Dr. John Walbert, the late Dr. John Walbert, who was president of Dallas Theological Seminary, chancellor, and one of the great scholars, biblical scholars, as it relates to Bible prophecy. In his commentary on the book of Revelation in chapter 17, he deals with this issue. Here's what happened. Nimrod had a wife. Her name was Semiramis. So Nimrod and Semiramis, husband and wife, had a child. His name was Tammuz. Nimrod brings his family into it. And he brings Semiramis and Tammuz to be the co-recipients of worship. A mother-son cult established 4,500 years ago as a religion. Now, one of them, Semiramis, is not mentioned by name. She's mentioned by title in the Bible. Her son, Tammuz, the son of the mother-son cult is mentioned by name. Go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7. Chapter 44 is another passage that five times uses the name for Semiramis. It's used one time here in chapter 7, but it has some interesting things I want you to study with me. Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 16. God is telling Jeremiah, remember he was a prophet to the nations, and he's telling Jeremiah what he wants him to do and how to go about his ministry. Verse 16, therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayers for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. He's pretty specific to Jeremiah. So don't even pray for them. Don't intercede for them. I'm not going to hear your prayer. Verse 18, these are the children that gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women uh, need their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven. That is the name for Semiramis, the queen of heaven, used one time here, used five times over in chapter 44 of the book of Jeremiah. The queen of heaven. And God says, listen, don't even pray for the queen of heaven. Don't pray for those who follow her. The queen of heaven. You notice what it says here? They're going to need the bread. They're going to make the bread. Let me tell you what happened. There was a special holy day once a year when they would make hot cross buns on this special holy day, to serve. And then when they would take hard-boiled eggs, the boiled egg, the symbol of Babylon, and they would take these hard-boiled eggs, paint them up in beautiful colors, hide them in the woods someplace, give the children a little basket, tell them to go out and find those hard-boiled colored eggs out there. On this day, they're eating hard-cross buns, and while they're out there, uh, they would remember the holy day that they were celebrating. It was called Ishtar. Sound familiar? God said, don't even pray for people that do that. The queen of heaven, false religion. Go to Ezekiel chapter 8. In Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, 
we see the account of how the glory of the Lord leaves the Ark of the Covenant, hovering there between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. He goes over in chapter 9 to the eastern door of the temple. Chapter 10, he goes to the eastern gate of the city. In chapter 11, he goes to the eastern mountain, which is the Mount of Olives, and the glory of the Lord departs the earth and goes into the heavenlies. That's what this account is about. It starts in chapter 8, though, when God brings Ezekiel back to the temple. And I think it's literal because he grabbed him by the nap of the hair and brings him back to the temple, the word says. And uh, so he brings him back to the temple to see what he does, can see. And he walks around. He sees the image of, Ill, uh, of jealousy in the entrance of the temple itself. That's verse 5. That's another obelisk, just like the one that Nimrod built. That's in the temple complex. And what it represents is so vulgar, I cannot even tell you in public how vulgar it is. Now notice what he says here. He sees all kind of verse 10 creeping things, abominable beast, and all kind of portraits upon and around the walls of the temple complex. And he brings him inside. Look here at verse 14. And then he brought me into the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping over Tammuz, the son of this mother-son cult. Receiving co-equal worship, the false religion established at Babylon. And so we see the rise of Nimrod, Nimrod's religious portfolio. Let's look at his protege. Go to chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 17, we can see exactly how there is a connection between Nimrod and his religious portfolio and his protege, who is going to come to power. When you look at the book of Revelation, what covers the seven-year period of time would be those 16 chapters from chapter 4 through chapter 19. But there are two chapters that give us overall big picture of three and a half years and three and a half years. Chapter 17 is the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Chapter 18 is the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. We're going to look at chapter 17 today. We'll see the connection with the king and his kingdom, Nimrod and Babylon, and we'll see how it fits into end time Bible prophecy. Have you got chapter 17? Go to verse 5. And upon her forehead, I'll tell you who the her is in just a moment. Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. In other words, he's talking about what was established at Babylon 4,500 years ago today was that which is a false religion, the mother of all harlots. When you read through chapter 17, you're going to read the word whore, it's used three times in chapter 17. The word woman is used six times. So nine times you're reading about an unvirtuous, non-virgin woman in chapter 17. Now again, apocalyptic literature is a symbol communicating an absolute truth. And you go to the rest of the scriptures. The book of 2 Corinthians says that Paul wants to present us to Christ as a chastened virgin. He will present us pure, perfect, as it relates to a sexual relationship with ever no man, until they come to the altar. What is the opposite of a virtuous, virgin young lady coming to the altar to be married in holy matrimony? A whore, a prostitute. So what chapter 17 is talking about is a false religion. And I submit to you, it is a mother-son cult, still in operation, 
as established at Babylon by Nimrod and now carried on and coming to power under the leadership and the tutelage of Nimrod's radical protege who's going to come into power. In chapter 17, the word beast is used eight times. Look with me here as the horror is being described. Chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee unto the judgment of the great whore, that false church that sitteth upon the many waters. The many waters, look over here. Uh, This is apocalyptic literature. It's going to translate itself. Look at verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's talking about the Gentile world, basically. All right, we go back now to verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth had committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth had made, been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitteth upon a scarlet colored beast. The word beast used eight times. Who is it talking about? We have to go back to chapter 13 of the book of Revelation and verse 1. Chapter 13 and verse 1, which is the description of this beast who actually comes up out of the sea. And this individual has 27 different names. Over in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and verse 7, he is the little horn. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26, he's the prince that shall come. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, he's the willful king. In Matthew chapter 24, he is the false Messiah. In the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's known as the wicked one, the son of perdition. In 1 John chapter 2, he's known by the name that you know him best, the Antichrist. The Antichrist is Nimrod's radical protege who's going to come to power over that false religion that Nimrod established with his mother, his wife, and his son, the mother-son cult, receiving co-worship. Here in chapter 13, verse 1, notice. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, verse 1, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, that's apocalyptic literature. Let's go back to chapter 17 just a moment. Look at verse 9. Here's the seven heads. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. The woman's the false church. The seven mountains are a city. And in the time when John wrote this in 95 AD, the seven-hilled city of, of fame was Rome, Italy. And so it is that he's going to establish this false religion. Hey, by the way, what happened to the Babylonian religion, this false religion with the fall of the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C.? Let me tell you what happened. They had to change their headquarters. You know where they moved the headquarters for this false religion, this mother-son cult? After the fall of the Babylonian Empire, 539 B.C., they moved it to the city of Pergamos. Pergamos? Oh, yeah, that third church in Revelation chapter 2. Pergamos. Do you know what was established in Pergamos? You know what they started doing in Pergamos? They started worshiping the Roman emperors. In fact, they deified them. They made them gods. They had a political title that was Caesar. You don't think all of them were named Caesar, do you? Caesar meant emperor. They had a religious title. I can take you right now to Pergamos, to the statue of some of these former Caesars. And at the bottom, engraved in the stone, is their religious title. You know what it was? Potiphus Maximus. The major keeper of the bridge. Oh, that was too long, so they shortened it to Pontiff. I'm giving you history. I'm reading the prophetic word of God. They brought into power 
these Roman Caesars and Pergamus, they had a whole group of priests that served them, a convent of virgins. They wore scarlet and purple outfits, which is what's described in chapter 17 of Revelation. Fish-shaped hats. They carried a chalice made full of blood and a cross made out of diamonds and pearls. And that was when it went to Pergamos after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. And it stayed in Pergamos until the fall of the Roman Empire, 476 A.D. Then it moved to the seven-hilled city, Rome, Italy. And the one that controlled it was Nimrod's radical protege, the beast out of the sea, who would control it from the city of Rome, Italy. That beast out of the sea. That beast out of the sea is the Antichrist, as revealed in Revelation chapter 13. The Antichrist will use the worldwide false religion to rule the whole earth during the first half of the seven-year tribulation period. That is revealed in Revelation 17. This is the precursor to the Antichrist destroying the false church and moving his operation to literal Babylon to set up a worldwide economic power base for the last half of the tribulation period. That's our study for next week. Please don't miss it. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Rights group Amnesty International says a military of Myanmar has likely committed war crimes against civilians. The junta seized power from the elected government in a February 2021 coup and has forcibly displaced more than 150,000 people. Brian Dennett with AMG International says airstrikes over the last few weeks have destroyed homes, medical facilities, and churches. Please pray the AMG team will have the resources to help more people, in Jesus' name. And a father in India went from an alcoholic who shamed his family to a spiritual leader, pointing his family to God. Eric with Mission India says one of their church planters shared the gospel with Dinesh. He began a relationship with Jesus, gave up alcohol, and today Dinesh is influencing his family for Christ. Give to Mission India and find your place in the story at missionnews.org, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Dodd Morris. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with Rick, 
For the last hour and a half, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, this is the time of the program that we do a quick recap and what we have talked about today. But what I do want to bring up again is our resources and one of the books, uh, all three of them actually, I think, you know, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, how those books have been so instrumental in our lives and so many lives of people across the United States. That's right. And again, these books uh, form the foundation. You talked about it earlier in the program, but they form the foundation of how we are going to study Bible prophecy. Dad wrote these books, and and he always said, you know, I'm not some brilliant, you know, highly academic speaker. I'm just a common man. Now, we know he was very uh, intelligent, but he put these books in an easy-to-understand format. And so I encourage you who want to those who we want to become a serious student to look and, and develop this framework with which to study Bible prophecy. And in order to do so, we have just recently put a digital version or an ebook up on our website, and I've got those all at half off. So anybody who wants to come for this next week, all those books are only $5. You get it, you put it on your device, and it will really help you in understanding God's Word and how Bible prophecy unfolds. Yes. Go to our website, prophecytoday.com, and you will find that information. And you can also sign up for our devotions. Uh, one of the things that we have done, we've gone through the scriptures and found uh, the key prophetic uh, passages from Genesis to Revelation, and uh, you can get that on a daily basis also. Go to our website again, prophecytoday.com. Well, Rick, what a, a program today that, again, is helping us to understand the times in which we're living. What has stood out, Jimmy, to me on this is kind of the human cost of the war that's taking place in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia right now, and uh, how it's potentially leading to a worldwide famine. Yes, Dr. Gunn, when he talked, and I, you know, it's almost as if he's been listening to our program for years, but when you have the proper way of studying Bible prophecy. You understand how it's all going to unfold. You understand the terminology, and, and as you read through it, it does help you to understand that, you know, there is a systematic way of thinking that it's going to continue to get worse. Uh, and, you know, the pieces, the stage is being set. God is using world leaders to accomplish his will, and it's not getting better. Our world is not going to get better. It's going to get far worse before it does get better. And that's what the scriptures tell us. One of the things we get when looking and examining these current events, and we read the scripture and you look at what the, the Bible says and we say, well, we believe it because it's in there, but I don't see how that would ever happen in this world. And then <laughs> as we're examining and looking at these current events and we see these evil dictators and and, and these people that uh, are, are, are taking action and all of a sudden you start to connect the dots, just as we did with Ken and we were talking about what's going on in Iran and China and, and the decisions that that Putin is making. Yes. World leaders, again, making these decisions, God uses them, Revelation chapter 17, to accomplish his will. And understanding that, you know, I know that this is not the first time in history that we have gone through these events. I know people that went through World War Two, and I'm going back in history now, World War One, and the Great Wars. And then when you look at through, uh, there have also been other famines in history. Now, today, it just seems like there's a conflict that takes place that affects all of the world, not just that region, but all of the world. 
so we do see that we're getting closer and it's almost as uh, I always like to say that, you know, when you remember the old reels, Rick, when you used to watch the old reel to reel and as you got to the end of the one reel, it kept, it started going faster because all the tape was uh, on the first reel, right? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? So, mm -hmm. and that's what I like to see when I look at Bible prophecy, I think we are moving faster and faster now towards the event of the rapture of the church. It might not be for another 20 years, and we're going to live as if it's not for another 20 years. But we also need to live as if it's going to happen in the next moment. And we know that if the rapture were to take place in the next moment, that we would all have to give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. Believers would have to give an account at the judgment seat of Christ as to how we lived our lives while we were on this earth. So I think that's a motivating factor and realizing that you know, as things are going to get worse, another motivating factor is God chose us to tell the world about his offer, his gift of his son. And that's the salvation message by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose again. He paid the price. That was God's offer to us. And we have to reach out and accept that. I was very much encouraged by Tom Meyer and what he brought to the program today. And and Dr. Gunn said the same thing. One thing that we don't do anymore as much as we could, maybe it's because of the fact that we have our telephones which, mm -hmm. uh, with a world of information at our fingertips, but we don't memorize Scripture. And I know, and we're, this is Father's Day's tomorrow, and I think Dad was one of the mm -hmm. uh, one of the people that could recall Scripture just an incredible, he had an incredible brain, and he wasn't like that in all areas of his life. He was like that about Scripture. He sure was, Rick. You know, uh, and how he, why that was the case? Because he was preaching every weekend, sometimes five or six times a week during, before, in between the weekends, preaching the Lord's message and preaching Bible prophecy. And so every time he was preaching that, the word was getting into him. And he knew the passages. Sometimes he could just teach without opening his Bible because he could see, as Tom said, you know, visualize that passage on the page where it is. Dad always, he could tell you exactly where it was on the page, what passage he was talking about. But that's a familiarization with the scripture. And that's really what we should do. We need to read it. Like you said, <laughs> put down our phones, but we need to read the scripture, listen to it. And then on this father's day, we need to teach it to not only our children, but to those around us in the life in which we live. Well, Jimmy Psalms one nineteen eleven says thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. And I think that's an excellent exhortation that our uh, guests today have given us, and, and I intend to do just that. Yes. As fathers and mothers, uh, people that listen to our program, as parents, as responsible Christians, that love letter that God has left for us, the very words that he spoke, that he breathed in and he inspired, all of Scripture is given for righteousness, for right living, for uh, living a productive life, and really to live a holy life in an unholy world. Rick, thanks so much for joining with me today on the program, and I look forward to joining again with you next week. And uh, folks, happy Father's Day, fathers, and let's keep looking up until the rapture takes place. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.